Welcome back to Curbside Consult's Statistical Review, where we explore different aspects of trial design, methodology and statistical analysis in studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Our aim is to break down key statistical concepts to help broaden your knowledge and skills in critically appraising the medical literature. I'm Dr. Angela Chen, Editorial Fellow at NHAM. If you tuned into our last episode of Curbside Consults, we discussed some of the recent trials that evaluated extended timeframes for intravenous thrombolysis in the setting of acute ischemic stroke with Dr. Stephen Feske. There's no problem if you didn't have a chance to listen to the Curbside Consult with Dr. Feske. We will be summarising the article while we review the topic today. In today's episode, we will focus on the article Thrombolysis Guided by Perfusion Imaging Up to 9 Hours After Onset of Stroke and discuss how to interpret outcomes in clinical trials that have been stopped early. Once again, I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. David Harrington. Dr. Harrington is a statistical consultant at NHAM and Professor of Biostatistics at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Welcome back to the show, Dave. Great to be back, Angela. So with that in mind, let's get started. Um, First question, in order to conduct a clinical trial, a significant number of resources are needed. So Dave, can you tell us about how the size of a clinical trial is determined? When designing a clinical trial, the selection of sample size is based on the minimum number of participants required to have a good chance, usually at least 80%, of detecting a clinically significant treatment effect. This effect size may in fact be modest, but should ideally be clinically relevant. So in determining the trial size, you are setting the power of the trial to detect a difference. So with that in mind, um, what do we mean when we say a trial stops early? A trial stops early when recruitment for the pre-specified trial size is stopped before the target enrollment is reached. In the thrombolysis guided by perfusion imaging up to nine hours after onset of stroke trial, the authors originally estimated that they would need 310 patients total in order to provide the trial 80% power to detect a 15% difference in the primary outcome between the two intervention and arms and the control arm. However, this trial was stopped early after the release of a similar study showing that thrombolysis was effective. And in the end, the trial had only 225 participants. Basically, when a trial is stopped early, it means that the full number of pre-specified participants were not recruited. And the unique thing in this particular trial was that it was stopped early due to what the authors described as loss of equipoise following the publication of a similar study. So this trial was stopped early for compelling reasons outside of the trial itself. But can you tell us some of the other reasons as to why a clinical trial may be stopped early? So a trial can be stopped early for a range of reasons. Sometimes the results of an interim analysis of the study data show particularly compelling treatment effects. Interim analyses should be performed according to a monitoring plan specified in the study protocol and be conducted by an independent data safety and monitoring committee. When this happens and a trial stops early because of compelling differences, patients within and outside the trial can use the active treatment sooner than originally planned. A trial stopped early should still have sufficient follow-up. So the earliest trials that tend to be stopped is about two-thirds of the way into patient enrollment. Mm-hmm. The other reason trial is stopped early is that the intervention has a clear deleterious effect or that early on in the trial it is clear that the intervention provides no additional benefit compared with the control arm. Mm-hmm. In this case, we want to prevent further patient risk and the trial will be stopped early. When a trial is stopped early because it is unlikely to show a benefit, statisticians call this stopping for futility. A trial may be stopped early because data from other studies become available 
before the planned closure of a trial, as in this case. This happens less often than the other two reasons, but being aware of other pertinent results is an important role for a data monitoring committee. Okay, I see. And so when a trial is stopped early, are there certain limitations associated with interpreting the results? The benefits of stopping a trial early need to be balanced with the potential downsides. Mm -hmm. These include limited safety data, less information about subgroups, and perhaps more importantly, less information about potential adverse effects. Mm -hmm. It's also the case statistically that trials stopped earlier tend to have larger effect sizes than you would anticipate. When trial data are analyzed multiple times, the chance that results are simply due to the play of chance is increased. Monitoring plans include methods for adjusting for these looks. These plans reduce the probability of a false positive result by using a lower p-value to support the claim of a treatment effect. Okay, I see. So effectively, when trials are stopped early at an interim analysis, usually would you say that the p-value needs to be less than what we traditionally think to be acceptable. Yeah, typically, that's right. If the overall p-value that was the target p-value for the study was 0.05, mm -hmm. interim analyses typically stop when p-values are smaller than that, sometimes by a factor of 10. Okay. And usually, when would they have the first interim analysis, say, two-thirds into it, or would they even do it even earlier? Depends on the design. If a treatment is potentially toxic, may have dangerous side effects, then interim analyses are often timed to start relatively early okay. so that safety effects can be looked at. Uh, when more benign treatments are being used, treatments for which there's a lot of experience, then investigators are usually confident to allow enrollment to go up to a half or two-thirds before they do a formal analysis. Okay, I see. Um, so in this particular trial that was stopped early, the authors found that the primary outcome, which was a modified ranking score of zero or one, was attained by 35.4% of the patients in the intervention group and 29.5% of those in the placebo group. So a difference of 5.9% with a p-value of 0.04. And then after adjustment for baseline prognostic factors, this difference was 6%. And the adjusted hazard effect size was 1.44 with a 95% confidence interval between 1.01 to 2.06. So how should we be interpreting this trial? Can we accept this result then? Trial was stopped early because information from another trial, that is information external to the trial, made it unethical to continue. Mm -hmm. In this case, no adjustment to the planned p-value was necessary. Even after stopping short of the full enrollment goal, this trial still had a positive outcome with an unadjusted p-value of 0.04. The two things to keep in mind here are that the p-value might have been even smaller had the study continued to full enrollment. More importantly, the standard error of the estimated treatment effect would have been smaller, leading to a more precise estimate of the treatment effect. Mm -hmm. The effect size of the intervention may not be the most accurate or the most precise when a trial is stopped early, and this needs to be considered when reviewing a trial, and so people should be just a little bit skeptical of mm -hmm. the exact result. In this trial, it is also useful to have a look at the secondary outcomes to see whether they support the conclusion of the primary outcome. Interestingly, some of the secondary outcomes linked to potential mechanism for treatment effect, such as functional independence and the percentage reperfusion at 24 hours, support the primary outcome result. But others, such as functional improvement, do not support the primary outcome. These secondary outcomes also have wide confidence interval, highlighting the question regarding the precision 
of the effect size estimate. One wonders, had the trial been completed to its full enrollment, whether the primary outcome would have had an even stronger result and all of the secondary outcomes might have lined up to support the primary outcome. Mm, Okay, interesting. So thanks a lot, Dave. So if I could ask you to summarize some of the main takeaway points to consider when interpreting in a clinical trial that has been stopped early, what would you say they would be? First, always consider the trial quality and conduct when reviewing a trial that was stopped early, as you would with any trial, even if it's one that is stopped on schedule. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a trial can be stopped early due to compelling external data, so one should be sure that that data really did destroy equipoise that might have been present when the trial started. Mm -hmm. And trials which have been ceased due to significant results that have been identified during an interim analysis have looked to see whether interim pre-planned analyses were intentional and what the pre-specified stopping criteria was. This should usually be a more conservative stopping p-value compared to otherwise accepted p-values to suggest success at a trial completion. Pre-planned early stopping procedures are very important to protect against a false declaration of a trial success. Finally, look at the effect size and be mindful that the effect size may not be the most accurate or the most precise estimate of the true effect, particularly if the result is too good to be true. Always compare the results to other similar trials when you're evaluating the true effect of an intervention for a trial that was stopped early. If you bear all these things in mind, there are certainly circumstances where stopping a clinical trial early, either for futility or clear superiority, is a reasonable decision. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you to our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, which includes Karen Buckley, Carl Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thank you to my co-editorial fellows, Dr. Angela Castellanos and Dr. Amanda Fernandez, and also to our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hammondvik. Because this series is new and we're trying something new, we do want your feedback, so please email us at resident360 at nejm.org Leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts or feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resident 360, the website or via social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I'm Dr. Angela Chen, Editorial Fellow at NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.